We look this morning at what is the pivotal event in all of history. If you're a Christian here this morning, if you're a follower of Jesus, then what we have this morning in Easter is the culmination of everything that is important. This is our Super Bowl World Series March Madness wrapped into one. It's the biggest event of the calendar year every year. It is the thing that as Christians we ought to look forward to at all times, looking forward to that celebration of the risen Savior. Now, in reality, we celebrate the risen Savior every Sunday. Easter is an every Sunday thing, but it's really special when we come on that day of the year, no matter when it falls, in middle of March or towards the end of April, whenever it is, to celebrate the risen Savior. But it's also a time of year when people like to attack what we believe. I haven't looked at the U.S. News and World Report, the Newsweek, the Time, and all of that uh, this week or in the past couple of weeks, so I don't know if it's true this year, but in years past, this has been the week that they have chosen to run stories about the new version of the events of Jesus' life. This is the week that they choose to write stories about whether or not Jesus rose from the grave, whether or not Jesus died. I do know the Discovery Channel ran this week a, a story about whether or not Jesus died on the cross and whether he rose again from the grave. And you can imagine how most of those come out. Not in the positive. If you ever watch one of those shows on television, there's a good chance you'll come across the name of a guy named John Dominic Crossan. Either on the show or in your reading, if you ever see that name, just be aware that he is a guy that set out several years ago to find the historical Jesus. Now, first of all, that was always a strange term to me because I didn't realize we ever lost him. But he searched for him, and he formed this group of guys called the Jesus Seminar. Now, the purpose of the Jesus Seminar was to determine what was real and what was not real about the Scriptures. And so this is how they would do it. They would gather around a big table, they would sit down, and they would talk about something. And then they all had several beads. B-E-A-D-S. Beads. And they were all different colors. And one color meant that that definitely happened. One color meant that probably happened. One color meant that may have happened. One color meant that may not have happened. Probably did not happen. And then the final was definitely did not happen. And this is how they determined whether or not something in the Bible was true in the stories of Jesus. They would read a verse and then they would vote. That's it. They didn't look at anything. They just read it and they voted. Well, here's what happened. When they came out, there was only one thing they were probably sure happened. And that was that Jesus had a mother named Mary. That was it. Stories began to come out that these guys were brilliant scholars, had studied this. They were just taking a vote. But gradually that began to build up steam. Over two dozen articles have been written in the last couple of years about this, this Jesus seminar and their findings and the resurrection of Jesus and why it could not have happened. Gradually more and more stories began to come out. One guy wrote a book and while he was a visiting professor at Vanderbilt University. Anybody know that place? And he said that the resurrection is not something that's important to the Christian faith. He said it's time in our society to get rid of those archaic notions of religion from the past and to move forward with what Jesus taught. 
So here we are on Easter Sunday morning. And while the world is talking about bunnies and eggs and baskets and toys and ham and all that stuff some of you got waiting on you after you leave, we come to talk about the resurrection. And the question I want to ask today is, is it really that important? Is it something that we have to fight over, to stand firm on, to say, yes, it's important, and here's the reasons why. This morning, in a moment, we're going to play the what-if game out of 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul is defending resurrection from the dead. Now, there were some people that began to question this whole deal early on. And they began to question whether or not this was something that was true. And Paul decided he would write a letter, and in that letter he would tell them why it was important for the resurrection to be true. On your handout, we start in verse 1. We will actually focus on verses 9 and following in a minute. But in verse 1 it says that Paul writing to them, Now, brothers, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you. Basically saying, we're going to go back to the basics for a minute. I'm going to tell you why I preached what I preached, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel you are saved if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you. Otherwise, you believed in vain. This is what he preached. For what I received, I pass on to you as of first importance. This is the priority. This is the foundation. This is the basis of everything we talk about. That Christ died for our sins according to the Scripture. That He was buried. Now, if people out there say that the resurrection isn't important, they would say, that's all that's important. We just stop there. But one of the things that I know about my faith, that I am sure about my faith, that I know without a doubt, is that the reason that it's important that Christ died for our sins and that He was buried is because on the third day He was raised again according to the Scriptures. Right? Last week we watched a little video towards then. Some of you have commented on this week that it's Friday, but I'm glad the story doesn't end on Friday. Why? Because Sunday is coming. And without Sunday, it doesn't matter about everything else. And so what Paul says is, this is of utmost importance. This is big. And then he's going to rib the reasons why. Now this morning, if I were to take a poll in this room, I would, I would dare say that most of you would believe in the actual physical resurrection of Jesus. Some of you may not. But I would say that if I did that, most of you would. And so your question is, brother, why, why do we even need to know? We just know that it happened. Here's what I want you to understand this morning is the impact that Easter has on us and what it would mean if it weren't true. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. The first thing we see here is that if the resurrection did not happen, then we are wasting our time. Look at verse 12 of chapter 15. But if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead... How can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. Verse 14. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. What they say right there from the beginning, Paul says, listen, you're saying some people can't come back from the dead. Listen, if they can't, then Christ didn't come back from the dead. And if Christ didn't raise, first of all, Our preaching, our lives, our living is useless, and so is your faith. Now, here's what's important to understand. The words useless there could also be interpreted as futile or worthless or without purpose. 
So think about this. If Christ is not raised from the dead, then everything we're doing right now is wasting our time. The singing that we just did, the preaching that I'm doing, the coming to church on Sunday morning, the dressing up like we have, getting everything together, everything we're doing right here, right now, is completely useless. Wasting our time. If the resurrection didn't happen, as far as I'm concerned, we can shut the door, we can quit taking up the offering, you can fire the preacher. Now again, I didn't say it were true. I said if it, you could fire the preacher. It's useless. We could sing, we could hang a sign on the outside of this building that just said, we are sorry for wasting your time. Now as Americans, we're pretty good at time wasting. Studies show now that Americans waste more time today than they ever have. A story came out recently in Fortune magazine about a new Internet phenomenon that is coming around. It's called World Golf Tour. And you're going to be able to get online and play golf at courses around the world with people all over the world. And companies are scared about what's going to happen. What's interesting is I emailed that to my brother who works at a law firm in downtown Nashville. And a little bit later, not during the work day, but at another time, I was playing around on the side a little bit, checking out the golfing on the World Golf Tour, and I hit an unbelievable shot. I mean, inches from the hole. And I emailed it and forwarded it to my brother, because I wanted him to be impressed by my shot. And he emailed me back and said, apparently, I forwarded your email to too many people and that site has been banned from our office from now on. Too many people were wasting time. Here's the thing. We're good at wasting time. But I think we would all agree that what we're talking about here is not just wasting 10, 15, 20 minutes in the middle of the day. We're talking about wasting our lives. And if the resurrection of Jesus Christ is not true, then what we are doing right now is wasting. I uh, read a story of a pastor up in the Chicago area this week who was coaching his son's baseball team, and he said that he didn't tell his son's players and coaches that he was a preacher because usually that ended any conversation they might have. And so he was talking to his son, and they were out hitting one night at practice. He was hitting fly balls to him in the outfield, and he was just hitting them one after another out into the outfield. And, you know, pop flies, and they're catching them and running in. And suddenly, in a minute, he heard somebody yell from the sidelines, that sure is a lot of work for a preacher. He just kind of shook it off. After about another 15 minutes, the same voice he heard again said, I said, you sure are working a lot for somebody that just works one hour a week. By the way, it's two hours this week. We had two services. (laughs) After practice, he called his son over. He said, said, son, how how did he find out I was a preacher? He said, well, last Wednesday, you know, we had practice and you weren't here. And somebody said, well, well, where was he? And he said, well, he's at a church board meeting. He said, why is he at the church board meeting? They said, because he's the preacher. And that guy was in the meeting when he heard. So his son said, Dad, I'm just curious. Why doesn't he like preachers? He said, I don't know. He said, well, what kind of church does he go to? He goes goes to one of those churches that really doesn't believe in a whole lot. He said, what do you mean they don't believe a whole lot? He said, well, they don't believe in 
They don't believe in the virgin birth. They don't believe that Jesus was perfect. They don't believe that Jesus came back from the dead after he was crucified on the cross. And his son just sat there for a minute, thought for a minute, and he looked back at his dad and he said, Dad, what kind of church is that? And the truth is, if we don't have the resurrection as the central point of who we are, we're not much of a church. Here's the second thing. It's not only if Christ is not raised, we are wasting our time. The second thing is, if Christ is not raised, ministers are the biggest liars. Look at verse 15. More than that, we, these are preachers, these are Paul, the ones that are preaching, are then found to be false witnesses about God, for we have testified about God and He raised Christ from the dead, but He did not and raise Him. In fact, the dead are not raised. What he says is, listen, if it's not true, first of all, I'm out here wasting my time. You're wasting your time. We're all wasting our time. Second of all, if we're wasting our time, you also have to understand that we, as ministers of the gospel, are liars. That we have been perpetrating the biggest lie in history. Now, let me say real quickly, I'm not saying here or implying here that ministers don't ever fail. I'm not implying here that ministers don't ever lie. We realize, we know, we have seen on television, we have heard reports, we have read the news stories of preachers, dynamic men, seem to be used by God, who were not who they showed to be, who were doing things counter to God's Word that were found out. I'm not talking about the fact that sometimes preachers who are human, including myself, make mistakes, that we sin, that we still do things that are not pleasing in God's sight. What I'm saying here is that as ministers of the Gospel, if this is not true, then we are perpetrating the biggest lie in the history of the world and the most important subject in the history of all time. It's a lie. If Christ is not risen... It is a lie. Now, here's the thing. I just have a hard time believing those first apostles would live their entire lives and die for a lie. I read the story again this week of a lady named Kathy Powers who was involved in a big bank robbery back in the 60s. After the bank robbery, she moved out of state, went to Portland, Oregon, cut her hair, changed her name, changed her lifestyle, and was living free from the law invading on them. But the guilt of her involvement in that robbery began to weigh on her over and over and over. And before long, she just got to the point where she turned herself in. They asked her why. She said, I can't live with this lie any longer. Imagine transforming the whole world and those apostles are lying for their whole lives. How many of you here remember Watergate? See your hands. I don't, but I've heard about it. In Watergate, they were trying to get people to confess and all they had to say to this guy at Watergate was, if you don't tell the truth, if you don't do what you're supposed to do, you are going to get two years in jail. And suddenly out came all of the facts they were looking for them. He basically said, I don't want to go to jail. That's not what I'm going to do. Here's what happened. And he confessed the fear of two years in jail. 
Now, each one of the apostles, we'll talk about this more in just a minute, each one of those apostles would go to their grave with the truth of Jesus being raised from the dead. And all but one of them, and he was exiled on an island, had an opportunity right before they were killed for their faith to deny what happened in the resurrection. But they didn't. Today, ministers all over the world are speaking of Christ who came back to life. Proclaiming a power that comes from Him. Saying that their lives have been transformed by it. And if it's not true, then we are all lying here today. Here's the third thing. If Christ is not risen, then forgiveness of sin is impossible. Look what it says in verse 16. For if the dead are not raised... And Christ has not been raised. In verse 17, And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. And look at what it says at the end of that. You are still in your sins. You are still in your sins. The truth is, without Christ conquering death and conquering sin, then you and I have no hope of having our sins actually forgiven. The reason that that is so important is that each and every one of us are sinners. I know it's not a real popular word. We still talk about it here at the church because it's a biblical word. And it tells us in Scripture that we all have sinned. Every one of us. Now, sin is apparent in our world. I left this morning before the paper got to my house. But I can guarantee you that if I open up that Sunday paper this afternoon after I have my ham and my deviled eggs and my hash brown casserole and all of that, amen, After I have all that and I sit down, as Tennessee may or may not be getting beat, and I open up my paper, that on the first page I can find somebody sinning. And I can probably find somebody sinning on page 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, section A, B, C, D. I don't know. Sunday Tennessee may have sections X, Y, and Z. I don't know. And if I don't see them sinning, here's the thing. In between those little pages of the stories on the Sunday paper are going to be all those enticements to get me to sin. It's called Best Buy, Circuit City, Comp USA. When that TV I really like and would like to have hanging in my house is on the front page, no payments for a year. And I begin to covet. That's Sorry, that's a little confession for you. But here's the thing, we all sin, amen? Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Every time I read that verse, I think about this. For so long growing up, I thought that said, For all have sinned and have fallen short of the glory of God. But the truth is, that's not what it says. It says, For all have sinned. We have sinned. And it says, We continually, on an ongoing basis, fall short of the glory of God. The truth is, I'm as much of a need of a Savior today as I was when I was nine years old and I got saved. That's why His resurrection is so important. In the Jewish faith, what they would do to settle sin is they would have a day called Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. And on the Day of Atonement, they would bring in a couple of goats and they would put on one goat the sins of all the people. They called Him the scapegoat. Where that word comes from. And they would turn the scapegoat outside the city and force him to leave. 
And the thing was that they thought God was laying their sins on that goat and that goat was leaving. They would then sacrifice other animals, another, another goat, and that would be a sacrifice to God and thanksgiving for taking away their sin. Here's the truth I know. No goat can pay for my sins. But my Savior did. And He did, and He finished it when He came back from the grave. For you see, the punishment of sin is death. Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death. And without Christ dying, without Him actually giving His life, going into that moment of death, conquering death as the enemy and sin as the cause for our death, there was no hope for us to have our sins forgiven. Now let me just say this to you this morning. If you're here this morning, you're not a follower of Jesus Christ. You've never come to that place where you've accepted Him. The second part of that verse, which is not up there, says, The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Son. The truth is, if you're here today and you don't have a relationship with Jesus, there is no way you can pay for your sin. And the wages, your payment for the sin in your life is death. That's both physical we all will experience, but more importantly, that means eternal separation from God. If Christ is not risen, then forgiveness of sins is impossible. Here's the fourth thing. They just get better, don't they? Here's the fourth thing. If Christ is not risen, there is no hope. If Christ is not risen, we have no hope. Look at verse 18. Then those also who have fallen asleep. Now, when Paul uses the word fallen asleep, what's he talking about? He's not talking about somebody taking a nap, right? That means they have died. They are dead. He says, then those who are fallen asleep in Christ are lost. Here's what he's saying. If the resurrection didn't happen, then everyone who has passed away is gone. One of the privileges I have as a pastor is getting the opportunity to be with families and to speak at people's funerals. Whenever I'm at a funeral, I never underestimate the importance of realizing that in many ways, in the last public forum about someone's life, I have an opportunity to give a word. And I'll be honest with you, some funerals are easy and some funerals are not. Here's the interesting thing, and it seems like it might be opposite The easier funerals are the ones where I know the people best. And I am confident about their faith in Jesus. Because I can stand before that group of people and without a doubt in my mind say, I knew this person. And I know what their faith was and I saw it in their lives. And so I know that though their body lay here, that right now they are experiencing life like we cannot imagine for they are in the presence of their King, the King of Kings who paid the price with His life and rose again from the grave and promised us that when He rose He went to prepare a place for us and that one day He would call us there and that when we get there we would be with Him forever. It is assured that this person is alive. Let me tell you, I cannot imagine doing a funeral where I didn't have the promise of the resurrection. No hope. One of the difficult, most difficult days of my life pastoring came 
when I was called to the hospital and a mother had lost her two-year-old child. Eli was two years and two months. And I walked into a hospital room where this child that had just turned two, similar build to Eli, was laying there. And one of the things that I know because of what Scripture teaches and my beliefs about the fact that Christ has risen from the grave and because of that, those who die before they're able to make that decision, before they're mentally able as a child is two-year-old to come to know Christ, how protected by Him in His grace and His mercy. I don't fully understand it, but I believe it. What I could say to that mother in that hospital room who was grieving the loss of her two-year-old child is that there is hope. I could not have done that without the resurrection. If Christ is not risen, we have no hope. Here's the last one. If Christ is not risen, then Christians are the most pitiful people on the earth. Look at verse 19. You can tell, I didn't come to get real creative with the points this morning. It's just Paul, right? Verse 19. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are to be pitied more than all men. Now, I know sometimes when things happen, when problems happen in our lives, when things happen that we like to have our own little pity parties. Amen? Now, some of you are acting like you don't ever do that. I have been around you. I have seen you. You like to have pity parties. Amen? We like to. But here's the thing. We don't like somebody else having a pity party for us. And what Scripture teaches me that if we have placed our faith in Christ and His resurrection, and it is not true, then we are to be the most pitiful people in the world. People could drive by this building today, point and laugh, and they would be right in saying, those people are pitiful. People could walk up and down our streets and point to our house and say, those people believe in Jesus. They are pitiful. Now here's the thing. They may still say that. They may still do that today. But we know that we're not pitiful. Because we know that we have our faith in one who is true. If it weren't, they could say it and it would stick. So let me ask you, does the resurrection make a difference? If he didn't raise from the dead, then we're wasting our time. If He didn't raise from the dead, I'm lying to you. If He didn't raise from the dead, then my sins are not forgiven. If He didn't raise from the dead, there is no hope. If He didn't raise from the dead, we are pitiful people. I would say that the resurrection is important. In fact, I would say it's vitally important. I want to show you that this morning in a little game called Jenga. Have you ever seen Jenga? Have you ever played Jenga? Let me see your hands. All right. I'm looking for volunteers. Good. Good. Now, I'm going to ask Jake to come up and Emily. I'm going to give Jake a second chance. He didn't do so well in the first service. All right? Now, the object of Jenga is that you can see it's wood. What you can't see, and I'll just show you the top layer, there are three little pieces of wood at each level, and they're turned crisscross. And your job when you're playing Jenga is to pull out one block at a time, place it on the top without knocking down the whole structure. Okay? So, Jake, you, you can get the first turn. All right? And so Jake just begins to pull out. Now, the thing is, as Christians, we have a lot of things we believe, right? 
We believe in a lot of things. There are a lot of doctrines that we believe. There are a lot of good things we can believe. You can go ahead, Emily. There, there are a lot of things. Now, there are some things that we disagree on. There are some things that we disagree about as Christians. And the truth is a lot of those things are kind of periphery issues. They're on the outside. They're not that important. No, they're important, but they're not vital. People ask me sometimes why we have so many denominations, and I just say it's because so many different beliefs about Christianity you have to be careful with because there are things that are important, but they're not worth breaking up churches over. But at the same time, there are some things that are important. Now what's happening here is that Jake is pulling out one at a time. Emily is following suit. And they're trying to make sure they don't get the most important pieces. While Emily studies it. Just imagine if I just came and ripped out the bottom. Sorry, Emily, you lost. Jake, you won. You're one and one today. Good. Have a seat. Here's the thing. If you take out the resurrection, everything else crumbles. Everything. That's why it's important. You see, the resurrection is important because I know, because of the resurrection, that I am not wasting my time in this life. And I know, because of the resurrection, that when I speak to you about what's in this Word of God, that I am speaking the truth to you, even in a world that questions whether or not truth exists, I know that there is truth. Because of the resurrection, I know that my sins have been wiped clean, that I have been forgiven of all that I have done, that my iniquities have been borne by the one who died on that cross. I know because of the resurrection that there is hope in this life, but more important than that, there is hope in the future because I sure hope this life isn't all there is. And I know because of the resurrection that while people out there may scorn and shame, I am not the most pitiful person on the earth. I am the most hopeful, wonderful, excited person because of what Jesus Christ has done. This is what we're going to do to close. I'm going to give you ten reasons I know the resurrection is true. This is my top ten list. Now, top ten lists are important. They're good. There's a guy that does one every night on TV. Watch him as you go to bed. Some of you don't stay up that late. These are my top ten reasons that I believe the resurrection is true. First of all, the stone was rolled away. You say, big deal. That is a big deal. You see, the stone was not a small little boulder. It wasn't just a little bitty rock. It was a huge piece. Some people put its measurement in the thousands of pounds. I've recently moved in my house, and anything over a hundred pounds... I did not want to move. Amen? I got somebody else to do it for me. And they used a dolly. They didn't have dollies back then. They didn't have moving companies. And so the question becomes, who rolled the stone away? I mean, the truth is that the guards weren't on their side. The disciples were cowering in a corner. The Jews weren't going to do it for them. And the women weren't strong enough. So... Who rolled the stone away? Here's the ninth reason as we're counting down. Number nine is women were the first witnesses. Now, I am not in any way implying that the testimony of women are less truthful than the testimony of men. 
I have a wife to go home to, so I do not imply that. But in their society, women were not trusted as witnesses. In a court of law, women weren't allowed to testify. And if you look at every account of Jesus' resurrection, the first people there are women. And it's their testimony that they base everything on. This is kind of reverse psychology because, you see, if the disciples are trying to make up a story and make it as believable as possible, they would never have put women as the first witnesses. Here's the eighth one. No one claimed he was still in the tomb. Now, I don't know whether you saw this or not, but uh, a few uh, months ago, there came out with a story about the lost secret tomb of Jesus. And some archaeologists had found a box, and in the box were the names inscribed, Jesus, Mary, and Joseph. And so they determined out of that that it must be Jesus, the Jesus of the Bible. Here's the thing. No one ever claimed to have found the burial site of Jesus until the year 1980. So for 1,950 years, no one claimed to have seen where Jesus was buried. Now, here's the reason I think that's important for the resurrection. Because there were a lot of people in Jerusalem that day that did not want this story to go out. And so there were a lot of people that were trying to tell other people that it wasn't true. Here's what I would have done if I were a Pharisee or if I were a Roman official. I would have taken people to the tomb. You say Jesus has risen from the grave? No, he hadn't. Let me show you. There's his body. I mean, wouldn't that make sense? If someone said to you today that somebody had risen from the dead and that they were no longer in their grave and they thought they had credible evidence, couldn't you dig up their grave and find the body? Nobody ever did that. Number seven on my top ten. Scripture tells us there were over 500 witnesses. There were over 500 witnesses that saw the risen Savior. Now, I have heard that there have been some group hallucinations before, but I find it hard to believe that in the first century Judaism, there were people out on a hillside, 500 at a time, having mass hallucinations of Jesus talking to them. I just don't buy it. Number six, the church emerged shortly after what happened, right after it occurred, just a few days, within 50 days of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, the church adds 3,000 people to its membership. And I would think that in the midst of that, people would begin to give compelling evidence that Jesus was not risen. Right alongside of that is the apostles' empowerment. These apostles who were scared and mystified and cowering in a corner suddenly become bold witnesses for Christ. They suddenly become bold in their affirmation of the resurrected Lord. In fact, they get so bold that when someone threatens to kill them, they basically say, you do what you've got to do. We cannot stop speaking about Jesus. Now, I know in English that's a double negative may not be good, but it's real good Greek. We cannot stop speaking. There's no way. We cannot never stop speaking. Here's number four. Not only were the apostles empowered, but skeptics were converted. One by one, these people that were outside the faith, that were attacking the faith, started to come to the faith. The most important one or the most uh, visible one in that time was Paul. 
who was a persecutor of the church, who was somebody that killed Christians for their faith, suddenly became a Christian. Number three is the martyrs. We mentioned this earlier, but all but one of the apostles was killed for their faith. John died exiled on an island. Some of them were sawn in two. Some of them were crucified upside down. Some of them were run through by a sword. And all of them were given the opportunity to recant. Psychologists tell us that people will die for something they believe to be a lie, but they have yet to find someone that will die for something they know to be a lie. And they all went. Here's number two. Your lives. I look across this room today and I see people have been changed by faith in Christ. I see people whose lives have been radically altered by Jesus. I see people who have given their lives to Christ and as a result, He has changed who you are. I think of two people, not from here, that were in my previous church that have now moved to Georgia. They were named Dave and Chrissy. And when I met Dave and Chrissy, they were wild with a capital W-I-L-D. A little bit younger than me, and so in, in, when in my previous church, there weren't a whole lot of young couples when I got there, and so we tried to, to fellowship with them, talk with them, get to know them, and they were just crazy wild. One week during revival, Chrissy was saved. And I will never forget her coming to my office the next day and the immediate transformation. Immediate. There wasn't a 12-step program, not that I don't think those are good, those are necessary and good, but for her it was immediate. Her husband took a little bit longer, but he came to faith in Christ. And before long, those people that were two of the wildest people in that whole county, notorious for what they did, were helping to lead our youth group. Were speaking at churches all over West Tennessee, and now are helping to lead a youth group in Georgia. And their lives have been changed. But here's the number one reason I believe in the resurrection in my life. Now, I'm not going to jump on any pews today, but a few weeks ago I told you a story about a preacher that talked about all the testimonies of the Bible and then said, but nobody's got a testimony like mine. And the truth is, that's it. If I didn't have 10 through 1, if I didn't have 10 through 2, those other ones, I would still believe in the resurrection because of this one. You see, when I was nine years old, I was sitting in a church, in First Baptist Church, Dyersburg, Tennessee, and while the preacher preached, I gave my heart to Jesus. And since that day, I have not been the same. It is a daily process. I grow continually in Him, but He changed my life. And if I didn't have the stone rolled away, if I didn't have all of the witnesses that were there, if I didn't have those stories, it wouldn't matter, because I know what Jesus did in me. That's why when I was watching the Today Show and this guy comes on and says he's found the secret lost tomb of Jesus, I didn't for a minute wonder if it were real. That's why when all the stuff started coming out after that about why it wasn't real and why they didn't do what they should and why people were misquoted and why statistics were, were twisted and turned, when I saw all of that, I never for a minute doubted because of what Christ has done in my life. And no matter what comes in the remainder of my days, whatever attacks may come against my faith, the one thing that I know without a doubt is that Jesus Christ has changed me and saved my life. And that only happened because He rose again from the grave.
It's Easter. The title of the message is that Easter changes everything. And it does. And I just want you to know, I don't know whether you're here, and some of you are here, and I see you every week. You're here every week because this is just what you do, and, and you're a part of it. Some of you are here because you're passionately devoted to following Christ. Some of you are here just because it's the ritual. This is what you do. Some of you have just are new here. You, 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 this is the first time, the first few times you've been here. I don't know where the Lord has you. And I don't know what's happening in your heart and in your life. And I don't know what kind of difference Easter makes in your life. But I can tell you that if you allow it, God can change you right now. For some of you, that means having a real relationship for the first time with the resurrected Savior. For the first time ever. You may not even know what that means. You don't know what that entails. But you know you need it. Something inside says you do. This morning in a moment, we're going to have a time of invitation. And you can come forward and talk to me about that. For some of you, it may mean just letting people know that you have done that. You need to make that step and say, I've done it. For some of you, it means joining what we're doing here at the church. and Say, this is where God is planning me. I want to be a part of what's happening here. For some of you, it may just mean there's some burden on your heart you need to release to Him. This morning, can I just ask you, whatever the Lord leads in your life, would you be obedient? Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, Lord, we do thank You for this Easter morning, this celebration morning, when, Lord, we can celebrate who You are and what You've done and the fact that You have given Your life for us, but more than that, Lord, that You have come back from the grave, that You have been resurrected, that You are alive forever. And, Lord, even as we're about to sing that because You live, we can face tomorrow. And because You live, our lives are better and changed. Lord, I thank You this morning for the truth of the fact that You live today. Lord, I pray if there are people here this morning that need to make decisions, that need to come forward, that, Lord, needs need to come and, and for the first time find out who You are, Lord, I pray that You would convict their heart. Lord, maybe they don't even know they need to do that, but this morning You are going to convict them. Maybe, Lord, it's to, to recommit themselves to You, Lord, to, to say that they've been walking in a different direction. And this morning, they're we're going to recommit. <coughs> Lord, whatever it is, I pray that Your will be done. If it's that they're to come and join this church, to be a part of what we're doing, if it's to come and give some burden to You, to come for prayer, Lord, whatever it is, I pray Your will is done. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. We're going to stand and we're going to sing. If the Lord leads this morning, would you come? God sent His Son. They called Him Jesus. He came to love, heal and forgive. He lived and died to buy my pardon. An empty grave is there to prove my Savior lives because He lives. I can face tomorrow because He
term and life is worth a living just because he lives how sweet to hold a newborn baby and feel the pride and joy he gives but greater still the calm assurance this child can face uncertain days because he lives because he lives I can face tomorrow because he lives all fear is gone because I know he holds the future and life is worth a living just because he lives. You know, as many of you know, we have two children. Eli, who is five, and Luke, who will turn two this summer. And both times that I've been in the hospital holding them for the first time, that second verse has come to mind. Now, how sweet it is to hold that baby, but you know... What makes it worth holding those two children is to realize that because of Christ and His death and resurrection, that these two can face uncertain, uh, Lord, that they can, they can face eternal days with You because You live. I don't know how I could parent without that knowledge. And I pray daily that they come to the understanding of who Christ is in their life.